Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy by Trustark. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. As 2022 is ramping up to enter the holiday season, it seems that Paul and I have become traveling fools. Is this what our podcast would have looked like had we not had basically three years without traveling? Probably so. But the great thing is the event that Paul attended this week, Privacy Space, was started online. You'll hear a little bit more about that from our first guest, Richard Marigold. But we also have interviews with Claire Archibald, Rowena Fielding, and Tash Whitaker, some of our favorite names in privacy. Although I feel like we're missing the unexpected question. So for the unexpected question, I'm literally going to open it to a page and go for myself. One word for today. It's cold. Cold is my word. Paul, take it away. On November 10, I attended a fairly new privacy event in the UK in Leamington Spa, somewhere in the the area of Birmingham. It is called Privacy Space, and it is a fairly small event, about 100 people, all or almost all from the United Kingdom, who come together to discuss all kinds of privacy topics. It is also not intended as an event where all the tech vendors would appear and sponsor sessions. There are no panel discussions. It is just a series of keynotes, sometimes by one person, sometimes by two, but all in a very enjoyable, very relaxed spirit. It was the first time I attended. It came up as an event during COVID, mainly online uh, at the time. And earlier this year, they had a first face-to-face edition and now their second face-to-face edition. And it seems to be a success. At least the response that I got out of a lot of the participants was very, very positive, both during the event and also after. Since it is so small, we thought it would be nice to give you a bit of an idea of what was discussed. So I spoke to two of the organizers while I was there, including one that you've already heard before on the podcast, but also to two of the speakers that you get a bit of an idea also on what they were talking about and have a chance to maybe reach out to them if you want to learn more about their respective work. So it is a slightly different episode this time, maybe also slightly shorter, because we give you some uh, some of the highlights of privacy space. First up is Richard Merigold, who is the co-founder and managing consultant at iStorm, a UK-based consultancy. And Richard has traveled globally supporting organizations across healthcare, pharmaceutical, technology, and also the financial service sector. I asked him, first of all, how did he look back at the event? It's been fantastic. We have, we always wanted this to be an environment where people can collaborate, share ideas without kind of fear of other people's opinions or fear of being shot down. And I think watching everybody 
out in the corridors and out in the exhibition space chatting, that's, that's definitely been there. And people have learned so much from the speakers as well, which are community-based speakers rather than vendors and tech vendors. So I think there's been a, a great amount of knowledge shared for people and it's been, it's been really, really lovely to watch. So how did Privacy Space come about? Because there are so many privacy conferences already on the calendar every, every year. Of course, all the dozen IAPPs around the world and we have the Nordic Privacy Arena and CPDP. And was there a need for more privacy conferences? I don't think there was a need for, for more. I think there was a need for something different. So it originally started as an online, an online event during lockdown because people just needed somewhere safe to, to talk to people and to, you know, to share ideas. And at the time, LinkedIn was, I don't want to say angry, but people were being, you know, a little bit unfair and like challenging people on their, on their posts. So the idea was to create just somewhere where people could to share ideas freely. And then we realized that a lot of the bigger conferences are, are very busy. They've lost that kind of personal feel. They're very vendor driven. And we wanted this to be community driven rather than vendor driven. So we try and bring in smaller vendors who wouldn't usually get to attend events and encourage people. You know, we don't sell the lists to anybody. So nobody gets the, the attendees or anything like that. And it's just a really safe place. I think it's, it's different to what else is out on the market. And I think that's what makes it, makes it so special. So what's next in store? So we're going to do them every six months. So April and November is going to be our, our usual timelines. We don't particularly want to get any bigger, in all honesty. I think we had about 70, 80 people here today. And I think that's a really nice number. It allows people to, to get to know each other and to, to feel comfortable. So you know, we'd like to take it to different places you know, if there's a desire for that. We had a conversation about taking it to Dublin, possibly Portugal, which is where Diogo's from. So yeah, we'll, we'll see where the journey goes. But at the minute, I think we'll just keep doing what everyone seems to like, which is, which is what we're doing today. And if our listeners want to get updated on your next events and maybe want to attend, where should they go? So it's www.privacyspace.eu and that's the website and you can uh, register on there for the mailing list as well. And obviously follow Privacy Space on LinkedIn or follow myself, Diego, Tat or Barry and all of the information gets posted on there as well. Very good. Thank you very much and good luck with the future events. So yeah, for the names you heard mentioned, that is Richard Merigold himself, of course, Diogo Duarte, who is uh, the Advanced Privacy OU founder and also an international data protection consultant, Tash Whitaker, who we've been hearing from at the podcast before, and who you'll also hear in a moment, and Barry Isberry Malt, who you also recently heard on the podcast. Next up first, however, is Claire Archibald. Claire is the service manager for data protection at the Education Data Hub, based out of the UK. Claire is a solicitor, has experience in project management, in counseling, and also working as a school business officer, which gives her a unique understanding of the challenges schools face with data protection. And she leads the team of the Education Data Hub dealing with data protection for schools. And you may not realize, but Claire is a big fan of the pod, which was also very much apparent when I spoke to her during the conference. And it is always, Kay keeps telling you as well, it is always such a pleasure to meet the fans of the podcast and to have those conversations with you. Keep the feedback coming. We love hearing from you. But right now, let's listen to Claire. Okay, first panel this morning, or first keynote this morning, was actually from two Claires, and one of the two Claires is with me today, Claire Archibald. Claire, can you tell us a bit about what you and other Claires spoke about this morning? 
Okay, so I work in a service called the Education Data Hub and we're based in Derbyshire County Council. We provide data protection officer as a service to around 350 schools. And this morning we talked about our journey through the last three and a half years as we set off our service, what went well, what went not quite so well. And then I wanted to talk to the people here today about the importance of helping edtech providers to make sure that they get things right by schools and by, most importantly, the children whose data they're processing. So education technology, certainly something that's also dear to my co-host heart. OutSchool is, of course, also providing ad tech. But what are your key lessons learned? What are, or maybe to start with, what are the main pitfalls? I think for me, what the great main pitfalls that a lot of ed tech providers and schools fall into is that they don't really understand what's going on underneath the hood with this, with, the, with these products. And so a lack of transparency and a lack of being open is leading to a lack of trust. And people aren't really understanding what these providers are doing with this personal data. So ed, Google for Education is a really great example where a lot of people don't really understand what Google's doing with children's personal data. Why are they doing it? And so an increase in transparency and and being really open with data subjects, schools and campaign groups about what's going on in these products would be really helpful for the industry. And yet, despite all the transparency, the UK Department for Education is saying, well, you should choose either Google for Education or Microsoft and just get a contract and get it done. Yeah, so there was a, a big drive, particularly during the pandemic, where the Department for Education really encourage schools to take up technological solutions such as Microsoft or Google. And really, some schools were left in the position where they wanted to still do the right thing, and, but they found it really difficult to get good data protection and security information as part of procuring those systems. And that led to a lot of pitfalls. Systems weren't quite set up with the security in mind. And again, data subjects felt confused, worried, upset. Parents in particular might have felt confused worried, upset about what was going on with their children's personal data when they were in the care of the school that they were learning at. So there's two of you running this company. There's actually more of you involved in the company. How do you deal with all these schools? You say 350 schools and so many more teachers and parents and what was the term you used, the, the, the pitchfork parents? So we are operated outside of the, inside of the county council, so we operate a traded service within that council. So schools are free to buy our services if they want. So I head up the data protection team within that. And we have colleagues heading up cybersecurity for schools and data management for schools. And each of us has a team of people, individuals. And we make sure that the, the people in the team do their specialist interests, their specialist skill sets. So one of us might be really interested in data protection impact assessments. Another person is really great at dealing with subject access requests and data subject rights. Another person really is great at writing policies and guidance documents. And so we all use our skills together for, for the benefit of the schools. And, and we make sure that we, we're really aware that there's like a reactive arm to what we do for schools. So schools come to us with their problems or data subjects will have come to us with their problems. We fix that. But also we're trying to make sure that we're pursuing a proactive element of what our work is doing as well. So we're pursuing an overall data strategy in terms of improving the compliance across the board. So tell me a bit more, because those pitchfork parents were quite a central part of your keynote this morning. What are they and why are they a problem? 
So pitchfork parents are probably a group of parents who feel quite disaffected or disengaged with what's going on in school. And so that comes out in anger and frustration. And so what they might do is write very long, very angry emails to the school. They might complain to the information commissioner's office before trying to seek a solution with the school to the thing that they're they're upset about. So pitchfork parents, you know, I'm not going to demonize them because that they usually come out of a place where they are upset, worried and confused. And so we need to try and help those parents to understand what's going on with their personal data and to engender their trust and the feeling of working in partnership with them. It comes pretty difficult sometimes and it can, you know, people can sit on their emails and sit on social media until late into the night and they're prepared to put a lot of time into sending lots and lots of communications to schools and the schools then turn to their data protection officer or their data protection specialist and say how on earth do I begin to answer this and how do you do that lots and lots of patience so I think I always try to keep in mind that as I say those people are feeling worried and upset and disengaged and actually my previous experience in counseling and mediation has to come to the fore quite a lot here and so I make sure that we try to demystify what's going on, to explain what's going on and to be really clear and transparent. And sometimes I do need to say to the schools that I'm working with, you know, this person's got a point. They're upset, concerned and worried for a reason and we need to make sure that we're addressing their concerns. But there are, there are times when sometimes I might finish a communication with a data subject with, this is all we have to say on the matter now. You do have the right to complain to the information commissioner And we would be delighted to explain to the information commissioner how our practices work. So sometimes my communications need to finish that way. Yeah, that's unfortunate if it has to come to that. But obviously, I think every every DPO or DPO as a service person would would, would recognize that. You cannot have discussions going on forever. Final thing, maybe what struck me on your slides were that you also showed how you work with the evaluation of registers within your company. Is that something that you are willing to talk publicly about as well? Yeah, so, you know, we have developed a bit of a a RAG rating system and it's just a quick and easy way for our team with good humour to get a bit of a temperature of a school. And I'm afraid to say those, those, those RAG ratings translate into bloody ace. I've seen worse. <laughs> but they mean that we're, we're worried, where we're feeling really good and comfortable about a school. So as I say, you know, we take it with a, with a, a dose of good humour. Um, but we're prepared to work with our clients where, where, whatever stage of the journey they're in because actually we're there to be their critical friend and whatever point they're at, look and see how they can improve their, their processes. That was such a pleasure speaking with Claire. And... You honestly should have seen their slides. Everything that was discussed was under Chatham House rules, so the slides won't be publicly shared, but both players did such an amazing job with their slides, with all the visuals. And I'm sure if you um, reach out to the Education Data Hub, that you will be able to, to learn more about what they do and maybe also get some copies of their materials. Next up is one of the other speakers at the event, Rowena Fielding. And uh, Rowena is a longtime privacy friend. She is an experienced data protection practitioner with over a decade of experience advertising both voluntary and commercial organizations. And she used to be very uh, much into information security management, but is now very much into data protection as well. And she is a very big speaker also, at least in my view, 
on ethics and the ethical approach to data protection. She is also quite vocal. She is known as Miss IG Geek on Twitter, giving her opinion on a lot of things. Sometimes that's controversial, sometimes also not. And that might not always be to everybody, but it generally is to mind. And I would say also to Kate, we like it when people speak their mind. So I asked Rowena first of all about her talk about ethics. You spoke today about ethics, important topic for a lot of people in the privacy community, although opinions vary what ethics are and whose ethics we should follow. Can you tell a bit what you spoke about today at the conference? So yeah, I spoke about data ethics in particular, which I view as the conscience of data protection. As data protection law uses language like reasonable and appropriate and adequate, and really it's a business and organizations' ethics that determine what the boundaries of those definitions are. So I did a little bit about different schools of ethical thought, some challenges in thinking about ethics and some challenges in thinking and the way we think about data and the way we use data, just to kind of explore the topic a bit and to make people laugh. I think you succeeded there, certainly. What, what are the biggest challenges with an ethical approach to data processing? People being people. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But And how, how should people change that? Oh, I don't think you can change human nature. I think a big part of, of combating the tendencies of people to be people is recognizing one's own biases and mitigating for them and recognizing conflicting imperatives and prioritizing based on ethics rather than based on expedience in the moment and recognizing perverse incentives and challenging them. So when I talk about ethics or when I think about ethics, for me, it's always whose ethics are we talking about? My ethics are maybe not yours. It depends on cultural upbringing, on your background, on your social status, where you live, how developed you are, how rich or poor you are. The Chinese ethics may not be the American ones, may not be the Russian ones. How do you determine what's right in an organization? I think the only people that can do that, the people in the organization, they have to decide where to, to plant their stakes in the sand and where to take a stand. Because as you say, ethics are, they're very fluid, dynamic things. And the more we understand about the nature of humanity and the world around us, the more complex and murky ethics become. So I don't think there's a right answer to that, but I think it's worth organizations thinking and having conversations about it. And we shouldn't also say that organizations should write that down in a sort of public statement that's visible, like a privacy notice? Well, I think that really depends on whether the, what the organization's ethics policy is. I mean, that might not be something they want to admit to in public. <laughs> You're saying there are companies that may not be so ethical with their data processing? I would say there are companies whose ethics are not pro-human. Okay, well, on that note, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Rowena. And then the final person I spoke to at Privacy Space, or actually the morning after, is our friend Tash Whitaker. You heard about Tash before, about the work she does as a DPO as a service for a number of companies in the UK. And Tash is also one of the people behind Privacy Space, and she uh, was responsible for the program. So also to her, I asked how she looked back at the event to start. I think with a less painful head than a lot of people who came to the event. <laughs> there seems to be some very delicate people this morning. 
But it was brilliant, an absolute success. I don't think it could have gone better if we tried. We had some really, really good speakers. We had an engaging atmosphere. Loads of people saying it's one of the best conferences they've been to or events. I don't know what to call it a conference, but event. Best event they've been to. And lots of people looking forward to coming back in April. So you were responsible for the agenda for, for this, this, this edition of Privacy Space. What was your main aim? What did you want to achieve with the speakers that you got on the agenda? So a couple of things. We wanted to give a voice to people who haven't spoken before. So we had a couple of people there who are not naturally asked to speak at events, but we knew had some interesting things to say. So we particularly wanted them to come and have their first experience of speaking in a very safe place. And that went really well because I don't think you would know that they hadn't spoken before. And then I wanted to get people with knowledge and expertise and experience speaking because quite often when you go to a large conference, it's just the, the providers talking, you know, the software people. And it, it's boring. It's stuff we already know. You know, we've, we've learned all this stuff. We've been doing it for years now. What you're looking for is people who can give you insights to things that you might not have encountered before and things that you know you're going to come up against. So it's that sort of knowledge sharing that we want, as well as giving people the opportunity to speak for the first time. So one of the things I particularly liked for this event is that you also created an escape room. How did that come about? How did you design that? So I had originally done an escape room similar to this a few years ago with somebody and I could see there was massive potential in it. And it's been sort of going around in my head thinking I really want to do this again, but I've never had the time to sit down and design one. And so I decided that this was going to be the one I was going to try. And if it worked, amazing. If it didn't work, I'd just walk away. So I spent probably about three weeks on the design of it, building all the puzzles and checking that it worked. We did a run-through of it the night before the conference and we discovered that quite a few things didn't work and I had to rewrite it all quickly. But then when we ran it yesterday, it was amazing. It worked really, really well. Everybody did escape the room just about. We had to give a few hints. But I think that because unlike a normal escape room where you're just doing it for the sake of the clues, this one has to have learning objectives throughout it. So you have to learn about a dictionary attack, a brute force attack, not to click on phishing emails and things like that. So there was a lot to try and cram in to a very short space, but still make it fun. And I think it worked really well, actually. I was really pleased with it. So I'm sure listeners are now asking, so where can I get this? Is this, is this something I can license? Is this something I can buy? Would you be open for such conversations? Oh, definitely. What I'm thinking of doing is creating Escape Room in a Box where initially it would be going out with me for the first one and I would train the trainer and then walk away and leave you with the box so that's yours then to use with your own trainer as many times a year as you want to, and so on. So it's definitely in the making. Stay tuned for that. Thank you, Tash. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. So yeah, that's it. That was Privacy Space in a nutshell. As I mentioned before, the full event was under Chatham House rules, so we can talk about what was discussed, but not so much for each individual, what they said and how they said it. So without attribution, but you can, you can believe me, this was one of the nicest data protection events that I ever attended. I seriously had a very good laugh during many of the sessions. I think at the start of my own intervention about the risk-based approach, I actually said that nobody had told me when they invited me to speak that it would also be the Privacy Comedy Club. But at times that actually was the feel of the event. On top of all the really good substantive presentations and substantive discussions um, that we had. I particularly also really liked a session on the DPO from Blocker to Builder, because that is also 
a topic that I'm really trying to work on it. So instead of being the DPO that always says no, being the DPO that says, okay, so how can we solve this? Yeah, it was just, it was a really nice event. Uh, I think you've heard me say that enough by now. So on that note, I will also wrap up this podcast and hand back to Kate. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for those who joined you on the podcast as guests. How wonderful to hear from some of our favorite privacy people at Privacy Space. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in again to another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues. Heck, tell strangers about us and rate and review our episodes in your favorite podcast app or on your favorite podcast platform. Should you have any questions or suggestions, please reach out to us via Serious Privacy at TrustArc.com or info at SeriousPrivacy.eu. You can reach us all on Twitter at Podcast Privacy. Paul is EuroPaulB, and I am at the heart of privacy. We both, I believe, made an account on Mastodon, so at some point you can probably find us on there. But more than likely, the best place to reach us is on LinkedIn for serious privacy and start the conversation. Until next week, as Paul would say, goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was serious privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>